Well, we've got two texts this morning, and then this is going to be a flipping sermon. You say, all your sermons are flipping sermons, Pastor. That's not very nice. Um, Matthew chapter 24. And just a few verses from Matthew 24. This is, of course, the discourse that Jesus gives after prophesying the destruction of the temple and lamenting over Jerusalem and prophesying her destruction as well. Uh, We're just going to pick up in the middle of that, uh, beginning with verses, uh, verse 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And then from the epistle of 2 Thessalonians, which Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, a church that was troubled by false teachers who came in, and there seems to be some reference to a letter that was sent as though it was from Paul, but it wasn't. And they're very disturbed about what's happening, what's going to happen uh, when Jesus comes back, and are those people who have already died at some disadvantage for having missed it? So Paul writes two letters to allay those concerns. Uh, We pick up in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus Christ will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who, have, who d- did not believe in the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Father, we pray that you would make your book live for us this morning. We pray that you would show us yourself and we pray that you would show us ourselves in your word and that we would, by your spirit, be corrected 
rebuked, exhorted, trained in righteousness, encouraged, all those things that you have appointed for your word to do, each one according to his need. And the same word can fall in different ways on different hearts, each according to his need. Let us not be stiff-necked and rebellious if we hear your voice today. Don't let us harden our hearts as they did at Meribah when they tested you in the wilderness. Let us say, Master, speak. Thy servant heareth, waiting on thy gracious word. Amen. I'm still getting used to my new microphone. I haven't figured out how to keep it on my ears, so I'm always fiddling with it. And uh, I think ultimately it's not quite big enough to go around my head, and so it keeps pulling off backwards, which means that you guys need to stop giving me any compliments whatsoever so that the size of my head shrinks to fit my microphone. As was uh, mentioned before, Advent is the season in which we reenact symbolically that period before the birth of Christ, and we try to recapture something of the spirit of a godly person like Simeon, who uh, as an old man is introduced to us in Luke 2, tells us he was a righteous and a godly man and the spirit was upon him and God had revealed to him that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. And it says of him in Luke 2.25 that he was, quote, longing for the consolation of Israel. And that's what Advent is all about. For us, it's what it's supposed to be, longing for Christ and for Christmas Day, the day upon, not upon which Jesus was actually born, but the day when we celebrate the first coming of Christ with his advent, with his birth. But it's also traditionally in the church a time when we think about and learn about and long for the second advent, the second coming of Christ. And that is what I have chosen to explore with you this Advent. Now, in our first week, we discussed the Great Tribulation. And Jesus mentions that in, in Matthew 24. We read that passage. The Great Tribulation is uh, the catastrophic events that will unfold upon the earth near to the second coming of Christ and these, these great catastrophes will engulf believer and unbeliever alike. He says there will be wars, rumors of wars, famines, plagues, pestilences, uh, perhaps some sort of a, a catastrophic natural disaster, such as an asteroid or a comet striking the earth. There's that strange passage in Revelation that talks about something that looks like a burning mountain being hurled down out of the sky and it hits the sea and a third of the sea is destroyed and a third of the life in it and a third of the ships on it. Don't know what that is, but it could be like an asteroid or something like that. I know we're worried about that, the scientific community is. But in the midst of that general suffering and general anarchy and general decay, the unbelievers will find the time and the energy to hate the Christians and to seek to harm them and even to kill them. Now, last week we discussed, next, the great apostasy. Apostasy means defection or rebellion or falling away. And it's talking about defection, rebellion, or falling away from Christ. Therefore, no pagan 
can apostatize because they don't name Christ. It's impossible, for instance, for a Hindu or a Muslim to commit the sin of apostasy. The sin of apostasy is only for those who name the name of Jesus. Only those people can apostatize. And to apostatize is not merely to backslide into sin. It's not simply to be raised in the church and then drift away from it after you leave home and strike out on your own. It is to profess faith in Jesus Christ at one point in your life and to have some appearance of being zealous for him and being a true Christian and then at some time later to say publicly and overtly, I was wrong about Jesus. I once claimed to be his follower. Now I follow him no more. I once gave lip service to believing that he is God, the Son of God, and now I say he was just a man if he even existed at all. I once counted myself among his people, and now I think his people stupid and deluded and wicked. Now, why is that distinction important? Because the, the backslidden Christian can repent and be forgiven. Peter is the classic biblical example of this. The unconverted church member who went through one of those modern evangelistic methods that promise salvation on the basis of some action like responding to an altar call or sitting in a pew with every eye closed and every head bowed all around you and raising your hand when the preacher asks if anyone wants to receive Christ or praying the so-called sinner's prayer, which didn't even exist until the early 1950s. The teenager who responds to those methodologies, and not merely the teenager, but the teenager who responds to those methodologies at the lock-in or the crusade or the church camp and then drifts away quietly can still be truly saved later on. I myself was one of those. In uh, 1983... I was living with my grandparents in Hayti, Missouri, and they had a revival at the Methodist Church. They didn't call it a revival because that would spook the upper crust. They called it Four Nights for God, I think, or five, I can't remember. And they brought in an evangelist from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. His name was Neil Hodo. The guy looked exactly like a young William Shatter. It was like, oh, Captain Kirk is preaching at the Methodist Church. That's so cool. And my grandmother took me, because we were Methodists, and, uh, and the, he did his thing, and I don't remember much about it, but I do remember that I felt the need to go forward at the invitation. And then my girlfriend came up after I'd been up there for a few minutes praying at the rail, and she, I don't know, prayed about something and started crying and turned to me and told me she loved me. And, and then the preacher was up there going, oh, there's something beautiful happening here, everybody, the Spirit's at work. That night when I left, as we were walking to the car, I was very quiet. And my grandmother said, why are you quiet? And I didn't want to answer her. But the reason I was quiet was because as I looked inside of myself, I knew I was no different. I was the same Brian, the same rotten kid. I was that kid that other kids' parents won't let them play with. And I was the same kid. And uh, I knew I hadn't changed. I went home and I read the Bible my grandmother gave me every night. And I did my little uh, upper room devotional every night, and she was so pleased. She thought, oh, Brian's been saved. That didn't happen until two years later. And I knew I wasn't saved. 
And within a couple of weeks, I was living as if I wasn't saved. But I got saved later. But on the authority of passages like Hebrews 6 and 1 John 5, there is no further hope for the apostate. We are not even to pray for their salvation. Because it says that repentance is not possible for them. This is, in 1 John 5, this is the sin that leads to death. There's sins that don't lead to death, and there's sin that leads to death. And John is saying, there are sins that lead to death. Don't pray about it. Don't even try to convince them. Just get away. Leave them alone. Repentance is not possible for them. So as I understand the text, we are not to pray for them. We're not to pray for God to do what God has explicitly said in his word he will not do, which is grant them repentance. Well, at the end of days, likely because of the persecution at least in part, there will be massive apostasy, which naturally implies that the church has become large and widespread and influential in the places and nations and cultures in which it is established, as happened in Europe, as happened in North America and South America, as happened in Russia. Now, we can have our differences and should have our differences with all those various Christian groups, but there's no arguing historically the influence, for instance, of the Roman Catholic Church on Western Europe. And so the church has become large and widespread. And if you look at Western Europe, the U.S., and Canada in particular, the last 120 years or so, have been years of great apostasy. And that engulfed the mainline churches, the mainline denominations, first. You know, last night, uh, my, my daughter Jordan had a, a, had a choir performance. She sings in the, symphony, uh, the Cincinnati Symphony Youth Choir, and it was only the second performance that she's done. And it was just so wonderful, but it took place in this church in Cleveland that was a, a Disciples of Christ, which is, it doesn't count among the the liberal mainline, but it is the liberal mainline. And um, my wife showed me something that they had on their website. And it was written, I believe, by their pastor or somebody who had the authority to write on the website. And it said something like this. It's really hard to accept and welcome everybody. And sometimes I struggle with it. So first of all, there's her understanding of Christianity. To accept and welcome everybody. Stop. That's it. And then she said, but then I take comfort in the fact that Jesus struggled with this too when the woman from, the, from Syrophoenicia came to him and asked him to heal her daughter. He, could, he had to overcome his Jewish um, snobbery and, and cultural bias and, and, and all these things, basically racism against her. He didn't say racism, but that's what she meant. But he, but he did, and, and then he healed her daughter. You know, he became a welcoming person like he was supposed to be. And my wife and I both looked at that and went, <gasps> seriously, yeah, Jesus was struggling, but he repented. Nah, sure, I'm glad he set me a good example. When I talk about the mainline churches, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. That was the seminary I went to, folks, one of them. That's the seminary I graduated from. That was the denomination I was first ordained into. Heresy after heresy after heresy shoved down my throat. It was a 
very interesting four-year experience of spiritual warfare. But now what engulfed the mainline churches starting 120 years ago is engulfing the evangelical churches. And the evangelical churches were started by and large by faithful Christians who were fleeing the heresy of the mainline. And so our version of Presbyterianism, most of the church, like our presbytery is western New York, western Pennsylvania, eastern Ohio. I am told that eight or ten years ago we had seven churches. Now we have over 80. But they're all mainline Presbyterian churches that are finally being let go and allowed to be tr to transfer into our denomination. They were Bible-believing congregations, these little remnants amongst uh, the weeds, shall we say. And so we start these evangelical churches and we think, okay, we got it nailed down. We're going to keep doctrine pure. We're going to, you know, we're going to teach the gospel. We're going to evangelize. We're going to do missions. We're going to care for our kids and educate them in the things of God. That'll surely do it. And what we're finding out now is it's not. That the evangelical church is now starting to go bad. Not our denomination in particular, but as a general movement, the evangelical church is starting to go bad, and it's mostly centered on young people, people in their 20s and 30s. And so we, not we personally, but we as evangelicals, our corporate identity, we are now seeing what happened in the 1890s to the liberal mainline start to happen here, and it's happening faster. And it's really hard to know how to respond. I myself am planning and working to lay the groundwork for a post-evangelical church, which embodies what is good from the evangelical movement and joins it with what is good from the deeper views and practices of the historic church, which the evangelical movement has left behind, and to try and steer away from some of the nonsense in the evangelical church, as well as hopefully the errors of the historic church. And I don't know what that's going to look like, and I have almost no influence, so it probably won't amount to much, but it keeps me out of the bars. So, Now, today, we will be discussing the Antichrist. And there are all sorts of interesting and profitable debates around this issue, as uh, there are on the whole issue of the last things, and I'm mostly going to ignore them. And I'm going to just stake out a position that is sort of in the middle, historically speaking. Now, if you, on your own, want to explore a position which is not mine, but which informs mine, but I ultimately reject, and it's, I would call it, let's just say it's, I'm not using right and left in political terms, let's just say it's on the right, okay? There, there is a, 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 a ministry called Ligonier Ministries, the ministry of R.C. Sproul, who passed away a few years ago. Um, go to, go to Ligonier.org and watch the videos from a series called The Last Days According to Jesus by Dr. R.C. Sproul. And you need to know, because when you first encounter it, you're going to be like, um, I was when I first encountered it, oh boy, back in 2001. Um, Dr. Sproul was an advocate of something called preterism, which means that he believes that most of Matthew 24, as well as parts of 2 Thessalonians and 1 John and a lot of the book of Revelation, speaks 
to the early church about what they were getting ready to go through. And it doesn't necessarily speak directly to us. In other words, the book of Revelation, for instance, was given to a first century group of people, that, and it was for their context and what they were going through. It wasn't like, well, here's this thing that you can ignore for 3,000 years or 2,000 years or however long it takes the Lord to return, and then it'll make sense. It was a book that made sense to them then in their situation. And so preterism says, hey, a lot of this stuff has already been fulfilled in things like the destruction of the temple and the persecutions, particularly under Caesar Nero. And we'll get to that next week. And so in this view, these things were fulfilled in the destruction of the temple and persecution and and the reign of Caesar Nero. Therefore, we just aren't given a lot of information in the Bible about what will mark the days immediately preceding the return of Christ. It could happen at any time. And therefore, our job is to watch and pray and constantly be ready. All the preconditions have been met if you're a preterist, except the one I mentioned two weeks ago, which is the last elect person has not been saved. Wherever he or she is, that person hasn't been saved yet. Now, this is not a widely accepted view. But R.C. Sproul does a pretty good job of making a case for it from the scriptures. And um, I invite you to explore it. I found it profitable. If you want the polar opposite, if R.C. Sproul is on the right on this issue, and you want somebody on the polar opposite side, um, go find anything written by any of the intelligent and responsible dispensationalists, like John MacArthur, for instance, or folks associated with Dallas Theological Seminary. But here's what I want you to remember. Heaven and hell do not hang on getting the right opinion about the end times. There is so much that God is just left opaque to us, and he did it on purpose, and those things will come clear in his time. But heaven and hell do not hang on getting the right opinion about the end times. And I say that because there are some Christians, some in my family even, who make accepting their view of the end times almost a litmus test of whether you're saved or not, which is madness. But they do it. You get so invested in your little ideology and it starts to form everything. And if somebody does it, and it's really important to you, and I get that it's really important to you and it helps you somehow, it gives you a grid for understanding the world. And then somebody comes along and says, I don't agree with that. And you're like, what? Are you crazy? You must be evil. You must be lost. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Heaven and hell don't hang on a right view of the end times. Now, this will be a two-part sermon. Um, that's my Christmas gift to you. Uh, I'm telling you here and now that I have decided to give up on long sermons. You're welcome, Regis. Though I haven't met that goal consistently yet, my intent is 30 minutes or less per sermon. And so, what's that? Ha! <laughs> she knows me well. Now, let me start by laying out a key concept, and then I'll mush it together with something I said two weeks ago. In modern biblical studies, we make a distinction between what, uh, between, um, which, I'm sorry, which ancient writers and thinkers didn't make, or at least not in the same way. And I think it's a good and a helpful distinction. And, and since Christmas is just around the corner, we actually are all really familiar with 
one example of this distinction, we probably just don't realize it. Sometimes in the Bible, we run into passages that very clearly describe something that's going to happen in the future. So, for instance, in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, if you're fast enough, you can flip to it. If you get to Nahum, you're close. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. All right. Micah 5 and verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That is very clearly a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we flip forward in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, and verses 3 through 6, we read a very familiar passage at Christmas time. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That is a prophecy. Technically speaking, as we use the terms today. That is a prophecy. But there is another device that the scriptures use under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so it's not like anybody's fudging anything. And the scriptures use this device in a similar way, and we see several examples of it here in Matthew chapters 1 and 2 and elsewhere in Matthew. Modern scholars call that a typology. A typology. A typology looks back to an event or to a prophecy in the Old Testament, an event which has probably already been fulfilled in history or which already happened, or even a passage of Old Testament Scripture that just mentions something that happened in the distant past to the people of God long before the writer of the Scripture ever lived, and then looking back to that assigns that event a meaning in the present, or in the future. So in other words, there's a text in the Old Testament, and it had an importance and a fulfillment for that day. But it also became a pattern which predicts what God is going to do in this day. And let's look at a couple of examples. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Matthew chapter 2, 14 and 15. And he rose, this is Joseph, and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, when you look at the passages in the Old Testament, that talk about God calling his son out of Egypt, they are all about the events of the Exodus. So in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, we read this. When Israel was a child, 
I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. What is that about? That's the whole book of Exodus. And the, the, the prophet, or the, the apostle writing, Matthew writing, later on looks back at the calling of the people of Israel out of Egypt. And Israel was often in the Old Testament referred to God's son, God's child. And, and, and therefore, um, when God called his son out of Egypt, out of bondage, that was in some way pointing forward to Jesus having to flee to Egypt for safety and then be called out to live in Nazareth, which is where he was also said to have to live. There, there's another mentioning of this in Numbers 24, and I, th I think it's interesting. Um, it's not as clear as the one in Hosea, but it's interesting for another reason related to last week's sermon. Um, in Numbers chapter 24, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers 24 and verse 8, we read this. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. So Matthew, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, assigns those texts to Christ, and they have a double meaning. Now, incidentally, this passage in Numbers, uh, the person making that prophecy, which Matthew refers to as a perfectly good prophecy, is a guy named Balaam. Now, if you want a prime example besides Judas of an unregenerate man who exercised the gifts of the Spirit and spoke a true prophecy, even a prophecy concerning the coming of the Messiah, Balaam is your man. And you can read Balaam's story and all his prophecies in Numbers uh, chapters 22 through 25. I'll leave you to do that on your own time for your homework. And then read what the New Testament says about him. The New Testament's judgment on Balaam in 1 Peter, or 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 15 and Jude 11 is he is the archetype of a false prophet. He is damned and damnable. And yet he speaks by the Spirit a prophetic truth for the people of God. And that's because God is big and we are small. It's not because heresy is okay or we don't believe that everybody gets to go to heaven or anything like that. It's because God is big and if he can even use a donkey, he can use a wicked person. He can use Cyrus, king of Persia, for instance. That's another one in the scriptures to accomplish his purposes. Now that may be a stretch for you, but just go read your Bibles and see if I'm right or wrong. So, just to be clear, a typology is an event that happened in history that has a significance for the future and that points to the future by being a kind of a pattern for that future event. Another one we're very familiar with is from Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. Now, the funny thing is when you go back and look at that passage in Isaiah, it's talking about something that's appropriate for that age and something that's happened in that age. In the case of our Isaiah passage, it is first a prophecy to the Israelite king named Ahaz about the fact 
that the Lord is not going to let the Syrians beat him, even though he's terrified. And the sign that the Lord was telling the truth would be that a virgin would conceive and would bear a son. And therefore, he could know just by that that God was there and he was at work and he was going to keep his word. And, he, and God then further says through, uh, through Isaiah, before the child is even an adolescent, before he is old enough to know the right from the wrong, the Syrian kings who threatened Israel would be dead. So that's how much you don't have to worry about them, Ahaz. Now, that was a typology. That was a prophecy for Ahaz. But Matthew takes that prophecy that's fulfilled in Ahaz's day and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, understood that it pointed forward to Christ and the virgin birth. Now, think back with me about the idea of birth pangs that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 24. Birth pangs are similar kinds of events that happen periodically and get more intense towards the birth. Okay? Think about the birth pangs that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24. Similar kinds of events like the systematic persecution of Christians. And that's happened in the history of the people of God over and over Everywhere they've gone, they've gone. But they get more intense and they get more frequent as the time for delivery approaches. When it comes to the relevant passages in the New Testament that speak of the Antichrist, there is some very good biblical evidence, as well as some historical and textual evidence, even from pagan Roman authors, that points not at our day, 2,000 years in the future, but at the Roman Empire and at the destruction of the temple, and particularly at the emperor Nero. And it becomes pretty clear that Nero was at least in John's mind when he talked about the Antichrist. And that fact is why R.C. Sproul arrived at his preterism. There are also strong hints that we are also to think about a stupendously wicked and powerful person who is perhaps possessed by the devil himself, who arrives on the scene in the last days of the last days, right before the return of Christ. And so what I want to argue is that the emperor Nero was a type of the Antichrist to come, in the same way that the child born to the virgin in Isaiah's day was a type of the virgin birth of Christ. And if I'm right, then these passages in the book of Revelation and 2 Thessalonians and these other places are both a warning and an encouragement to the Christians in the first century who were undergoing tremendous persecution and temptation. And they were specifically being told in the midst of tortures like you can't even imagine that if they renounce Christ, all of it will go away. You can have your freedom, you can go back to your family, you can go back to your job, you can heal up. Just don't, just renounce Christ. Just publicly say, Jesus Christ is not God. He's not my Savior, I don't want anything to do with him. All you have to do is do that, said the persecutors, and it'll all go away. Can you imagine the temptation? 
That temptation, and there was also persecution from the Jews of the Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem, that the, the persecution that they were undergoing and the pressure that they were undergoing was in a way even worse because it was their own fellow Jews who were doing it. And so the, the, the temptation was enormous just to say, I renounce this Christ, I'll go and I'll make a sacrificial offering saying it was all a mistake and I sinned, and I'll go back and be a good Jew and worship in the temple like I'm supposed to do. And I won't have anything more to do with Christ. The whole book of Hebrews was written to people in that situation who were living lives that were that painful. And the writer to the Hebrews, we don't know who he is, is writing both to encourage them that Christ is with them and will enable them to stand and even have victory. It's also to tell them why the temple sacrifices were never, I mean, God used them in that time, but they were always pointing to Christ and Christ has come. And then to warn them, and there are stern warnings. There are three passages in Hebrews that are stern warnings about what will happen to their souls if they say, yeah, I'm packing it in. Sorry, I'm done, Jesus. That's the whole book of Hebrews. It's a wonderful book, wonderful book. I encourage you to study it. And so these passages maybe that, that uh, we're being told about, that we're discussing, were a warning to the Christians in the first century and also a typology that points to events immediately preceding the return of Christ, events which, if you and I are, depends on how you look at it, blessed or unblessed to experience, we will recognize. And we will say, this guy that's setting himself up like this, he's doing just exactly what Nero did. He must be the Antichrist. Now, says John, the Antichrist is coming. And indeed, there are many Antichrists in the world. Think about the birth pangs. Think about the persecutions. Think about the devil and how he's restrained and sometimes given liberty by God to do his worst. And then he's restrained again. I think that's probably the best way to look at these things. Now, I'm stopping here in order to try and keep my promise. I probably failed. Uh, but next week, if the Lord spares us, we will think together about these things again. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you so much for the gift of your scriptures. And we're grateful, Lord, that your scriptures are sufficiently plain in the critically important things that any person with natural means and an honest heart seeking the truth will find these basic truths. And these basic truths are sufficient to save. And then our experience of walking in these basic truths and sticking close to your Bible are sufficient to sanctify us. But Father, you have put, as Peter says, many difficult things in the scriptures. And that's to your glory. We don't yell at you for doing that. We don't complain that these things are hard to understand. It's also not wise to turn them into litmus tests for who we'll fellowship with and who we won't. And so I ask, Father, that you would give us both a heart of inquiry and an openness to be corrected where we might be wrong, as well as a, a gentleness and a graciousness with those who would disagree. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.